and suddenly you have this kind of like trickle effect of a handful of people who took on debt they shouldn't have taken on and a handful of derivatives that were ultimately based off of those people taking that debt and repaying it that start to have all of these interconnections through the rest of the economy. Hello, and welcome to the Banking and Payment Show, a behind-the-numbers podcast from eMarketer. Today is November 8th. I'm Rob Rubin, GM of Financial Services here at Insider Intelligence and your host. This is our fifth episode in this new series, and I'm having a blast. If you enjoy this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and subscribe. In this new series, you'll hear about the pressing issues keeping banking and payment leaders up at night. Each episode will feature fresh news, hard data, and our analyst perspective on where it's all going. In the last episode, Dan Van Dyke and I discovered super apps, a topic that might come up today too. Today, I've invited Ahan Sakar, GM of Helix by Q2, to join the show. The title of today's episode is, Will a Rising Rate Environment Sink Neobank Lenders? The Fed keeps raising rates to combat inflation, which is currently at 8%, which means if you held a dollar in cash for 10 years, it would be worth a little less than 50 cents by the end. And that's obviously a huge problem for the dollar, the main currency of not just the US, but the world's trade currency. Increasing rates is a primary tool to combat inflation, but one of the many consequences of rising rates is that fintech lenders are getting crushed. Our guests will explain what this means, why it matters, and what's next. Hi, Ahan. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. What did you think of my opening monologue there about the Fed rising rates and the impact on lenders? I think we're living it right now. I think the rate environment is kind of having these macroeconomic ripples that are affecting not just lenders, but basically every type of company right now. So I think it's very much front of mind and also something that we don't really expect to go away anytime in the next few months. Yeah. And so glad we're here to talk about it. That's great. So for the episode today, we're going to break it into three segments. And our first segment is called the headlines. And I want to discuss a couple of recent related developments. In segment two, story by numbers, we've selected two numbers that tell a story about the challenges neobank lenders are facing and two numbers about their untapped opportunities. And segment three is called Pretend CEO, Ahan, and you don't know this yet, but for this segment, I'm going to ask you to pretend you're the newly hired CEO of a monoline BNPL company. Oh boy. All right, let's get into it. <laughs> so let's get started with the headlines then. BNPL widens its net to capitalize on consumers' rising living costs. This article looks at how BNPL is expanding to categories like food and rent. And it's awful that people need to borrow money for everyday living expenses, and that's not new. People buy groceries on credit cards, and they have for years. But the credit card issuers report balances and delinquencies to the credit bureaus, and the monoline BNPL firms do not. So my first question, Ahan, is do you think that the BNPL firms will be required to report to the bureaus? Yeah, I think it's an interesting question and one where we've heard sort of both sides of the argument. You know, I think some people say, hey, there are lots of ways to go about delivering BNPL, some of which don't operate within a traditional lending framework. But many BNPL providers are basically issuing a loan, right? And are basically looking to see implicitly what is the credit worthiness of an individual and will I incur fraud by lending money out to this individual? And so I think in that context, in the context that most BNPL firms do operate in that type of model, 
I think it is likely that over time, these types of payments are going to be required to report to the bureaus. I think part of the reason is what we were talking about actually at your dinner just last week at Money 2020, which is there are a number of folks today that are going from one BNPL firm to another BNPL firm as they effectively incur indebtedness at one and look for another (laughs) effectively as a new way to get debt. Right. And that makes sense. I think people ultimately want to get a good deal for themselves and that allows them some flexibility without impacting their credit report. But as this industry matures, as the CFPB takes a closer look at what consumers are doing with BNPL, I think that is a fair expectation. The question that that brings up, and I think that's probably the question that we're going to get into over the course of this podcast, is if they are reporting balances and delinquencies to the credit bureaus, especially in this world where one of the biggest differentiators of BNPL has been that it's sort of a credit score free type lending experience, where does that leave BNPL providers in terms of differentiation, in terms of longevity in the market? That's a question that we're definitely going to ask. But more to this point, if they do report balances and delinquencies to the bureaus, I'd love to get your take on how do you think the issuers are going to react when they see their customers' balances that they were unaware of? I think it'll be an interesting reckoning for them. I think there are some who will find that their consumers are consistent, that they are operating as they would sort of expect. Uh And I think there are others that will find that because there were more efficient ways for those consumers to get capital without having to negatively affect their credit report, they were doing that. And potentially they were doing that in multiple areas. And those firms are likely going to have to renegotiate a bit of a relationship with that consumer. Meaning if you are suddenly a lot more risky than I thought you were, (laughs) I'm probably going to have to charge you a little bit more interest for that, right? Because ultimately what I'm doing is I'm taking a bet on you. I'm giving you money with the bet that you are going to pay me back. And if the probability of that has changed, then the bet itself gets repriced. Right, exactly. Let's go to our second headline. Spotlight takes Klarna's value well beyond checkout. And the article focused on Klarna's collection of new and revamped tools, which they're calling the suite, I think, Spotlight. They're opening Salvo into super apps, and it focuses in on the entire shopping journey from discovery to post-purchase management. So on their app, They're providing a shopping search engine, shoppable video content, a CO2 tracker for your purchases, and lots of other tools, which is sort of interesting. And I wanted to ask you, do you think that they're going to be successful engaging with customers outside of checkout? It's a really interesting play, especially because I think they're shooting for the thing that is going to be the number one most important thing for BNPL firms and for lenders in general, which is repeat engagement. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> these, these models are built on the idea that somebody is going to come to you every time they have a cash flow shortage and that they're going to build that relationship with you over time. And this to us looks like Klarna's attempt at doing that. I think the question that determines whether they'll be successful in that or not is why are people coming to Klarna in the first place? In order for that to be effective, in order for that shopping search engine, those shoppable video content, et cetera, to be effective, that has to be what consumers are looking for. Right. And I think part of the challenge, especially for firms that have been doing BNPL primarily within the checkout experience, right, primarily through another store, is consumers aren't coming to the Klarna app every single day trying to see, okay, what am I going to buy? They're showing up to wherever they were going to buy something, and it just so happens that Klarna was the paid for solution. Now, that's not true for every BNPL provider. There are other providers that actually focus a lot more on the application and focus a lot more on in-app engagement. And so with regards to the specific spotlight play, I'm going to put myself in 
in the shoes of the consumer. The only reason that I'm going to come and shop specifically on Klarna is if you get me access to things that I cannot get elsewhere, you get me access to discounts that I cannot get elsewhere, or you give me an experience that is so much easier that it is worth coming to you over where I would normally go, whether that's the mall or Amazon or the direct-to-consumer site that I was going and checking out. And so I think what I'd say here from just a pure face value perspective is that the existence of Spotlight itself is not going to make me engage with it. It is the value that you're able to uniquely bring. And I think that that goes to the business model of something like Spotlight. Because what right. you start to realize, especially as you start to evaluate the differences um, uh -huh. in a world where maybe you have to report to the bureaus between BNPL and anything else, the interesting thing about BNPL that makes it different from every other type of lending solution is that it is intrinsically tied to the purchase of a thing and accordingly is actually related to the marketing dollars for that thing. That's what I wanted to ask. You've talked a lot about what the value to the customer, but if you're the CEO and somebody's pitching you that we're going to start to build this app, what's the business model? Is it an affiliate revenue play? The way that I would think about it is, let's pretend I'm a BNPL company and you're a shoe company. Uh huh. There are quite a few shoe companies. I happen to like shoes, so let's stick to the category, right? I like it. What you've been doing, probably is buying a whole bunch of ads, maybe sponsoring athletes, et cetera, to go do marketing to get people to buy shoes. Yes. So I'm gonna come to you and I'm gonna say, hey, you know what sucks about that model? Is you're gonna spend millions of dollars and you're gonna have no idea if someone actually bought your shoes because they saw that ad. You'll just see your total growth in sales over a period of time right. and someone will try and attribute your spending to the growth. You sort of believe it worked. You hope it worked, honestly. <laughs> but then I come to you and I'm like, Rob, you don't have to live in this prehistoric world anymore. What if you could only deploy your marketing dollars when you were certain that someone's going to buy whatever it is that you're going to buy? So put differently, I'm going to enable someone to purchase whatever it is that you're looking to sell them, in this case, shoes. And I'm going to show your shoes to them at the moment where they're actually interested in shoes. And when they buy shoes, I'll be able to tell you, hey, because you took an 8% hit on this, you actually did get this transaction. So put differently, you spent half a million dollars in marketing, but I was able to drive $20 million in transactions, right? The only problem is that I don't go to Klarna to buy shoes. Exactly, right? And in order for you to go to Klarna to buy shoes, Klarna has to be a better place for you to buy shoes than anywhere else. Whether that means you get a cheaper price on shoes or you get access to shoes that you weren't getting before or the experience of buying shoes is easier than before. The challenge with things like throwing in shoppable video content is I'm not pulling up Klarna and scrolling through videos, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm pulling up, let's say, Instagram or I'm pulling up Reddit and the younger generation is pulling up TikTok, right? And so there's kind of this open question that I have about strategies like this, which is, you have to meet consumers where they're at. You have to build around the consumer. And if you're trying to convince the consumer that they should go stream through content on your phone, you better have some other content for them to engage with. Because I'll tell you, when I pull out my phone to mindlessly scroll through something, it's not to buy something, it's to consume content. And right. buying something is just a part of that underlying process where advertisements get inserted inside of that I know. stream. I have a whole Instagram problem with that myself. <laughs> yeah, try and stay away from that. <laughs> if you ever want to be spooked out, take a look at what Instagram thinks your preferences are. Oh, I know. Let's jump to the next segment, which I'm completely excited about, which is why I want to jump to it called Story by Numbers. 
And here we've selected numbers that represent the challenges and the opportunities that these BMPL and Neobank lenders are facing and basically help us to tell the story. So I want to present the challenges and then I'll ask a couple of questions and then I'll present the opportunity numbers and we can talk about it more. So perfect. the first one is a challenge for these providers and the number is 63%. And that represents the percentage of people who indicated they're living paycheck to paycheck since the the pandemic. And I've seen other data points which indicate that people use BNPL because they don't want to see the transaction on their credit card statement impact their line of credit. You talked about that. For some, it could be more, you know, buy now, don't pay or buy now, maybe pay. And my question to you is the retailer, the place that's selling it, they don't actually care if you pay it or not because the buy now, pay later vendors paying is going to give them the money less the fee. The retailer wants the sale. So how should the industry overall adjust their credit decisioning during this particular time of economic uncertainty? Yeah, it's a delicate balance is I think what I would tell you, because on one hand, a loan is literally the only way for somebody who is living paycheck to paycheck to acquire something beyond what they would get on a daily basis. And especially if that loan is used to buy something that makes them more productive or makes their life easier, right. or makes them healthier, that's really meaningful. And it's important that we as an economy support people in that journey. On the other side, and I think this is what you see the CFPB diving into as they're trying to explore BNPL, you don't want to incentivize people who are living paycheck to paycheck to go buy things that they shouldn't buy that are well right. beyond their means because you're only making that problem worse. And to your point, the retailer isn't really a part of this decision at all. They're right. just saying, hey, I want the sale. Get me people who will go make this transaction. And so to right. some extent, this responsibility, I think, lives with the BNPL providers, right? And it the one issuing a couple the credit. Exactly, exactly. And it requires a couple of things. It requires understanding what are the kinds of things that I'm making available for this type of purchase that I'm intrinsically ultimately incentivizing people to explore purchasing. Yep. How do I understand not just someone's credit worthiness, but also their ability to pay, which is not exclusively captured inside of your FICO score. You can understand it by seeing someone's savings over time. You can understand it by seeing how someone has repaid other debt over time, et cetera. Right. So how do I understand that? And how do I balance those two things to give people access to credit, but to not be irresponsible in the way in which I provide that to people such that they I, go buy a whole bunch of stuff they I totally to. agree. And it's sad that people are living paycheck to paycheck, but it doesn't do the industry or the economy or anybody favors to put bad debt into the market. Yeah, it actually just hurts the economy. It because hurts everything. Especially in the context where half of those people don't even have $500 in savings. Right, exactly. And I think we've seen it numbers of times over the course of the U.S. economy's history. But when you have a significant concentration of debt, a lack of savings, and an exogenous market factor, that is a terrible combination for an economy. Because suddenly right. you have one individual who's unable to repay, and then a series of individuals who are kind of dependent on that individual repaying. repaying. Yes. And then other people <laughs> who are dependent on those people. And suddenly yeah. you have this kind of like trickle effect of a handful of people who took on debt they shouldn't have taken on and a handful of derivatives that were ultimately based off of those people taking that debt and repaying it right. that start to have all of these interconnections through the rest of the economy. Exactly, because they were told they would repay it. Let's jump to the next challenging number Sure. while we're on this subject. You know, the Fed raised federal funds rate during its September meeting, and it's the third straight sort of three-quarter point increase, and it's right. definitely pushed borrowing costs to their highest since 08. And my question is, if their cost of funds is greater than their primary revenue source interchange fees, 
how will they adjust? Well, first, I think I would challenge one part of that statement, which is, I don't know that the largest revenue source for a number of these firms is interchange fees. At least from what we've seen, it tends to be those rebates from the merchants effectively subsidizing the cost of a transaction. There are different folks that take different approaches to interchange fees, everything from issuing kind of one-time use cards, which is very expensive, by the way, because you don't earn very much interchange, you're paying by card, et cetera. Or in some cases, issuing these more like reloadable, reusable cards, et cetera. But I think your question still stands, which is, hey, if your cost of funds is higher than the money that you're pulling in from merchants, what do you do? Right. It's going to sound really obvious, but I'm going to say it anyway, right? The first is you try and find ways to get more from your merchants. Now, you can't just go to your large merchant and be like, hey, you're going to pay me double because they're going to tell you, no, I'm not. I'm going to go to your next BNPL provider, right. right? The question becomes, how do I have greater value to these merchants such that I am worth a premium to drive right. up increased revenue, right? And what do the merchants want? The merchants want a couple of things. They want a guarantee that people are actually gonna come in and buy the thing. They want a loyal customer, hopefully, that will come and buy other things so that this wasn't just a one and done type situation. And they want efficiency of deploying their funds, right? And so at the root of that is personalization, meaning, If I can understand my customers better than other people, and if I can understand my advertisers better and I can make that match better, then I can command a premium. And we see this parallel across advertising markets. I mean, if you looked at Apple and Facebook and all those Uh kinds of guys, they do the same thing, right? They try and figure out how to better target people with advertisements so that they can drive higher revenue. So that's number one is how do you drive higher revenue? Number two is how do you adjust additional revenue levers? So I told you that actually today, a lot of BNPL providers are not earning very much interchange. They're typically paying for the service of issuing a card so that they can facilitate the transaction. Right. And so this is where I think embedded finance and banking as a service becomes so interesting because if suddenly you own that card and it's a reusable card, one, you're not paying every single time you have to make a transaction and two, you're actually earning a percent back on those transactions. So I think right. you can start pulling in those interchange fees to offset Okay. And then finally, I think the third piece of it is basically if you can find additional revenue sources to get more value out of the customer and to bring more value to their lives, that will offset the fact that your traditional kind of revenue to cost dynamic is maybe not as profitable as it could have been in the past. So net net, drive up revenues, find other ways to deploy funds more efficiently and diversify. Those are all good. Let's jump to our opportunities part of our numbers. Perfect. The apparel and beauty category share of BMPL declined from 80% in 2019 to 59% in 2021, according to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And the way I look at those numbers, I see that as a sign that BNPL is becoming more and more mainstream. For sure. And that consumers are interested in BNPL for a broader variety of purchases. So my question is really to ask, Are there any retail categories that you would say aren't appropriate for BNPL? I think you alluded to it earlier. Yeah, I heard about BNPL being offered at pubs and bars. And I'll tell you, Rob, I was not excited by that. Right. right? Because it is the opposite of lending to fuel productivity. So I'd say in general, purchase areas that are more like nice to have pure luxury add no additional value to people's lives are the ones where I hesitate a little bit more for BNPL to be appealing in the context that BNPL's big differentiator is being able to offer consumers a better and more financially efficient way to purchase specific goods. And then the next opportunity number is their big numbers. It's $3 trillion, which is the projected credit card volume in the U.S. in 2022 versus $76 billion, which is the projected BNPL volume in the U.S. in 2022. And, you know, wow. by itself, $76 billion sounds like a very big number, but it is really about 2.5% of $3 trillion. <laughs> 
<laughs> so the current crop of monoline BNPL firms, notwithstanding, it still kind of feels like early days for BNPL overall. So what do you see as the next iteration of BNPL to take it from where it is today to a more significant share of total credit volume? I think there's a couple of things. The first is that BNPL providers have to find ways to become more ubiquitous by understanding more of their consumers' lives. Meaning, if my only relevance to you is on a specific type of purchase one time, it's going to be challenging for me to drive up volumes. At the end of the day, what I'm doing is I'm meeting a cash need at a point in time, and that point in time will happen over and over and over again. And so I think what you'll see is monoline BNPL providers start to dive deeper into understanding their consumer's cash flow and meeting them at different points in their lives, initially just in a BNPL context to drive up that share of market. Uh-huh. But over time, I think what you'll start to see is BNPL, lines of credit, secured credit cards, unsecured credit cards, you'll start to see these lending vehicles start to blend together in part because of, you know, providers on the embedded finance side that are kind of reimagining ways to get credit, right? right. And so I think what you'll see is BNPL starting to increase in volume as it becomes honestly a new way for people to drive advertising, even more than a credit vehicle, right? It is a more efficient deploying of advertising funds that gives people a tighter access to credit for specific goods. So I think you'll see as more advertisers start to look at BNPL as a way of driving transaction volume, particularly as consumer transaction volume comes down in the context of a recession, I think you'll see a little bit of an uptick in BNPL. As providers start to understand more of a consumer's life and meet them at different points in that journey, you'll see an uptick in BNPL. And then as providers start to blur the lines of different credit vehicles to meet people based on their unique context, I don't know that you'll see exclusively a drive in BNPL, but I think you'll see a drive up in a number of alternative lending methods of which BNPL will be one of them. I completely agree on all those points with you. Okay, Ahan, that was great. Now let's take a break so I can tell you a little bit about our industry-leading benchmarks. I've seen a lot of benchmark studies in my career, and I can tell you that insider intelligence has added a valuable wrinkle. Normally, in benchmarking, you identify the feature and competitive products to compare and take an inventory. Typically, analysts order the features to generate rankings. But instead of rank ordering the features based on what we think, we ask customers of those products to tell us which features they find valuable. So number one in our rankings offers the most features customers value. Our clients leverage these benchmarks to evaluate the strengths and opportunities within key categories of features, inform future product roadmaps, and identify what's most valuable to customers. Log on to the Insider Intelligence platform and subscribe to access this valuable data today. Fantastic, Ahan. I love Story by Numbers. And now I want to put you on the spot with our third segment, Pretend CEO. I'm going to ask you to pretend you're the newly hired CEO of a monoline BNPL company. The company experienced tremendous growth during the pandemic, but today faces nervous investors, increased delinquencies, and an increased cost of funds. So as the new CEO, what are your top three priorities? And I just want to add this little caveat. The board ousted the founder and previous CEO because they want to see some profits. (laughs) No pressure. (laughs) No pressure. (laughs) Okay, got it. I think what I'll do is I'll first give you like, what is my framework for tackling the problem? And then what are maybe three priorities that I would have given that 
framework. That's is that fair? Perfect. Yes. Okay, cool. So first thing is pretty obvious. Before we do anything, we have to understand what is going on, right? So step one would be understanding the PNL. I think it's fair to say, judging by the fact that my predecessor was ousted, that we are probably not profitable, right? Good assumption. <laughs> ultimately, <laughs> oversimplifying it, right? There's only a few reasons that we would not be profitable. Our revenues are not enough for the folks that we're bringing in, or our costs are too substantial, right? Yeah. So the first thing I need to understand is, what are our biggest sources of revenue? What are our biggest sources of cost? Which of those are recurring? And which of those ultimately drive long-term engagement? Because like, kind of like we talked about earlier in the podcast, the number one metric that I'm going to optimize for is actually long-term engagement. Yep. Because if I can be consumer-centric, human-centric, and understand the consumer's needs better than anybody else, then I will be more likely to give them the types of loans that they need at different points in their lives. And if I understand the consumers better than anybody else, then I'm going to be a better place for advertisers to go than other people. Okay. Right. So step one of the framework is understand your PNL, figure out your biggest drivers of revenue and costs, figure out which ones are needed versus which ones are nice to have. Number two, and this is the one that we ask all of our partner companies with Helix to do this regardless of what industry they're in. Uh-huh. But understand your core value and the activity that you need to drive above all else. So on the first part of that core value, why do consumers come to our BNPL company instead of other BNPL companies? Is it brand? Is it that we have a better experience? Is it that our app is cleaner? Is it that they get better deals on credit? Is it just a better retail network? A hundred percent. What is it? right? Because that is our moat. That is the thing that we're going to have to emphasize if we're going to be successful and arguably focusing on anything else, especially in the context of limited resources, is a waste of time. So the first question is, why are people coming to us? And let's say in this context, they're coming to us because we have a better merchant network and they're coming to us because our application is easier to use. And instead of being a checkout-based BNPL provider, we are an app-based BNPL provider. So you can kind of BNPL anywhere and we just focus on the app experience. So, okay. So then what is the activity that we need to drive? Well, we already know that our fundamental economics are kind of wonky, which is why we're not making money. And that's probably because we're spending a ton of money on marketing. It's Uh probably because we're being pretty aggressive around what hooks and whatnot we're providing to people. It's probably because we're going after a broader swath of customers than maybe we should be going after. And so how do I get to a profitable world? Well, first I have to make that fundamental PNL profitable for the best types of customers. And then I have to turn all my customers into the best types of customers or as many of my customers into the best types of customers as possible, right? And that's why I come back to engagement, 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 yeah. right? Which is if I get the right types of customers and I solve real problems for them, then they will engage and then they will drive revenue. And if they engage, then other merchants will engage, other advertisers will engage, other consumers will engage. It's a flywheel, but it starts with understanding what is important to the consumer. So, okay. So now we've understood why aren't we profitable? So what's driving revenue? What's driving cost? What is the thing that makes us different from other BNPL providers and is the reason that people come to us? And then how do I double down on that thing to drive the activity that I want, which is ultimately engagement. And so the third part of the framework before I get into what are the three specific things that I would do is now that you know all those things, you have a whole organization (laughs) that needs to go and implement that change, right? Exactly. (laughs) So what I've learned today, Helix is one of the largest embedded finance platforms in the country. And we're dealing with these type of marketing duties too, right? And so are all of our partners. The first thing you got to do is you got to set the North Star, right? This is what is important. This is where we're going. And, you know, on our team. Exactly. In our case, it's going to be get more efficient, drive engagement, and become the best place for advertisers. And I'll quickly unpack all three of those in a second. But we have this mentality on our team. I always joke with our team that you should play this game as David and not as Goliath. So basically pretend you got three rocks and you have a slingshot and you're against this giant, right? 
If you take those three rocks and you shoot them at Goliath's chest, they're going to bounce off. Goliath is going to laugh at you. And then Goliath is going to squish you like a little bug. Right. But instead, if you take those three rocks and you take out Goliath's eyes and you take out one of its knees, you can probably take down a giant with three rocks and a slingshot. Right. And right. so the question that I ask my team and each of my leaders is, what are you going to spend your three rocks on? Right. And what I try and do is I tell them, here's what I'm going to spend my three rocks on. Think about it and then think about what that means in your world and what you're going to do, because to drive this type of change is not a top down. Here's what you're going to do. It is a reframing of what's important and an ownership for each of those people to drive that change. So quickly touching on those three things. Our North Star is we want to be the best place for consumers to manage their finances and for advertisers to drive the activity that they want, because I'm running a two sided marketplace, basically. Uh -huh. At the core of that is having a customer centric mindset and prioritizing helping them with their finances above all else, because everything else will come if I can do if that. You do that. Well. Right. Exactly. So what that means to me, it comes in three steps. The first one is how do I help our consumers manage their cash flow more efficiently and drive engagement in app? Right. Mm -hmm. And my fifth grade English teacher always told me, acknowledge the objection, right? The objection today is the CFPB is worried that people are going to extend loans to people who shouldn't be getting those loans. Right. So what I'd be doing is maybe counterintuitive. I would be pulling the CFPB in and saying, hey, I want to help Americans better manage their finances at a time where they're more cash strapped than ever. What does that mean to you? And how can I help you with that? And ultimately what you start to realize is I have to understand your problems. I have to understand your context. I have to understand your goals. And I have to understand where the boundaries are, right? right? What are the kinds of things that are not productive for you? What are the kinds of things that are necessary for you? And how can I be there for you when you actually need it? Because that is what is going to build trust. And that trust is what is going to drive engagement, right? So that'd be number one, help consumers manage their cash flow uh -huh. and understand that I'm not just here for one purchase. The second one is, okay, now I have the best solution to help consumers manage their cash flow and get cash when they need it at the right price. Now I have to fill in the other side of the equation to make my proposition to consumers more attractive. Because if I want to have the best, let's say part of managing cash flow efficiently is having the least interest, right? If I want to have the least interest, I'm going to need the merchant to go pay for that. Right. If I'm going to have the merchant pay for that, I have to be the most efficient place for the merchant to go. And so this is where personalization becomes really, really key. Because now you can inform the merchant about the customer that they want to know about for personalization. Exactly. As that shoe company, I bet you, you would love to convert someone from your competitor's shoe company, right? right? And you'd be willing to give them a much better deal just because you want them to try out your shoes, right? So I can help you win and them win at the same time because they want to buy a new pair of shoes and they've never heard of your company, but you're actually a great company. You want them to show up. And especially if they come from a competitor, that's a huge deal. Right. And I want to improve my underlying unit economics, right? And so by focusing on personalization and becoming the best place for advertisers, especially given what's happening with Meta and what's happening with Apple and all that in the overall ad space, sure. I can be at the forefront of turning BNPL into the next way for people to advertise and in turn, getting consumers a significantly better deal. I love it. You've helped consumers and created a new retail ad network. And the last piece is just to satisfy those investors. We have to become more efficient to improve our underlying PNL. And ultimately, that's going to come down to three things. One, find a more efficient way to deploy funds and collect funds. Right now, you wouldn't believe it. BNPL providers are paying 2% for each of those payments because they're accepting those payments over card networks. That is crazy. <laughs> that destroys yeah. your margins, right? right? So step one, I'm going to pull that money over ACH and eventually FedNow by creating a wallet that I can fund. And suddenly I'm getting 2% on every single one of those transactions. Right. Investors are happy. That's smart. Number two, we talked about interchange. A lot of people are issuing these one-time use cards that cost them a ton of money and earn them no interchange. I'm just going to put all that onto a multi-use 
card that actually drives long-term interchange right. has my brand in their pocket. So they think of me when they have that cash flow need and makes that more efficient. So, okay, now it's costing me less to get repaid. I'm earning more when they spend the funds at the merchant. And then the last thing is basically ruthlessly prioritize marketing spend, right? What I'm going to learn is some spend, like maybe I spend a million dollars on TikTok ads and I got nothing out of it. Kill it, right? Maybe I spent $50,000 on an in-store engagement and that became vaguely viral. Push on that, right. right? I'm not saying don't market at all. I'm just saying find the cheapest ways to drive the impact that you're looking for. And most likely what that's gonna involve is partner with a few large brand merchants to leverage their network to market more efficiently. So all in all, start with helping the consumer, help them manage their cash flow and realize that that's your role in their lives. Understand data about them and then use that to help advertisers drive a better and more efficient ecosystem, which increases your premium. And then find ways to cut your costs like processing incoming payments and drive up revenues like earning more interchange and pull out things like marketing and suddenly, you have a PL that's looking a little bit more attractive with mostly your good customers who are starting to use you more because you're actually seeing them where they're at and helping them get to where they want to go. So that's my gut feel. You are hired. <laughs> <I'll> take it. <laughs> I really do hope that some of the current CEOs of BMPL companies stay on to the end of this podcast. <laughs> So that they can sound like they've been thinking about how to fix this thing when they have to address their board. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they're already doing that. I hope so. Fingers I know, crossed. I know, I know. I'm just being funny. <laughs> thanks, Ahan. And thanks for everyone for listening to the Banking and Payment Show, an eMarketer podcast. And I also definitely want to thank our editor, Todd, who does a great job. In today's episode, Ahan and I reference articles that we published recently on Insider Intelligence about first BNPL widening its net to capitalize on consumers' rising living costs and also how Spotlight takes Klarna's value well beyond checkout. Our next episode is on November 22nd and you'll not want to miss it. Ahan, I want to again thank you. This was a really fantastic show and I really enjoyed it so much fun. I really appreciate you having me on and yeah, looking forward to catching up further as this market develops. Yeah, I look forward to having you on the show again. Appreciate it. Thank you, everybody, and have a great day. 